To make oneself happy, one has to have not only control over oneself, which is already impossible, one has to have control over all circumstances of the environment that are salient for one's happiness, which is completely impossible. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Bernardo Castro. Bernardo is an author, scientist, philosopher, and the director of the Essentia Foundation. He holds two PhDs, one in philosophy and the other in computer engineering. His work has been leading the modern renaissance of metaphysical idealism, the notion that reality is essentially mental. In this conversation, you'll learn how the life of Friedrich Nietzsche can be thought of as a microcosm of a cultural macrocosm we are currently experiencing, why life is inherently sacrificial, and how understanding this can provide a rich and deep source of meaning in our lives, Bernardo's concept of the diamond and how to harness it to live a life of service and let nature work through you, and more. You can learn more about Bernardo's pioneering work by going to EssentiaFoundation.org. Okay, Bernardo, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. To get started, one of the questions I, you know, I'm curious to ask you about is what do you think the psychological significance of the Adam and Eve story is from the Bible? Oh, I think as most of the Bible, there is uh, amazing, nuanced, deep symbolic uh, significance um, to, to, to the book of Genesis and to many other books in the Bible, you know, the book of Job, uh, the Apocalypse, uh, the Gospel according to John. There, there are lots of symbolism uh, there. Um, in the case of the Adam and Eve story, uh, with my eyes, the way I read it, it's the story of the fall into self-reflection, the fall into metacognition, the, the seemingly unique human uh, ability to think about their own thoughts, to turn their own minds towards the contents of their minds to ponder their emotions, to take explicit notice um, of their mental activity and to be able to say things like, uh, I'm having this thought now, or I'm feeling this way now. No, cats don't do that. Cats feel this way, but they, they don't know that they feel this way, if you know what I mean. Cats experience, but they don't know that they are a subject of experience who is experiencing this and that. We do. And that capability, that capacity is called metacognition in, in psychology. And um, when Adam and Eve took a bite from the fruit of the tree of knowledge, it could be any tree, but it's the tree of knowledge. Um, suddenly they knew that they were naked. I mean, they were running around naked <laughs> all the while. And presumably they were already experiencing their nakedness. But after taking a bite from the fruit, they knew that they were naked. To me, that's the fall into self-reflection. And, and that's also the exile from the Garden of Paradise, because yeah, the Garden of Eden. Because um, once you become capable of metacognition, that's when suffering begins. Before metacognition, there is pain. Uh, but after metacognition, there is suffering. And suffering is when you take notice of your situation 
and you run a narrative in your mind um, that opposes it. Like, I shouldn't be feeling this way. Why did this happen to me? If only I could this or that. That's suffering. And that's something you can only do when you, when you have explicit knowledge of your being as subject of experience. Um, so by taking a bite of that fruit, Adam and Eve fell into metacognition and were exiled from the Garden of Eden because they now became capable of suffering. And, and now they would have to till the soil with, with the, 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 the sweat of their brows. And life suddenly became very hard. It's an, it's, it's an extraordinarily symbolic story. That's a really interesting perspective. And I've heard you speak about this elsewhere, where there's a line somewhere in that in that the Genesis book where it's something like God made them like Himself, or something along those lines. And this whole idea of they became like God, and that was in a certain sense that they could. The, the key characteristic of of a God is that they can create words, and that was the moment when we could start doing that could maybe expand on that a little bit too yes when see when you're a cat and you're not metacognitive your experience is limited to what is what is the case like if you're feeling hungry then that's your experience you know you feel hungry that is what is the case if you're comfy and warm then that's what is the case and that's all you experience Without metacognition, you only experience what is the case, what is real. With metacognition, we become capable of creating alternative scenarios, alternative worlds. The worlds of the could have been, the worlds of the might yet be, um, uh, multiple future scenarios, multiple past scenarios. The past scenarios create regret. You only regret if you think there was an alternative and you leave that alternative in your mind. You leave that separate alternative world in your mind where you didn't make that horrible decision, uh, where you didn't do that horrible thing. Um, and, and, and it is the confrontation between real reality and the alternative realities we create uh, with metacognition that leads to suffering. Same thing about uh, anxiety. Anxiety is fear of a future state that only exists in our minds. We create that future state, that thing that might happen to you, that diagnosis you might get, uh, that boss that might fire you. We live these alternative worlds that aren't real, or at least are not yet real, or have never been real in the case of the past. Uh, metacognition allows us to create these worlds. And, and that's the root of regret, the root of anxiety, the root of a lot of depression, because you create alternative present worlds. Now, I shouldn't be in this situation right now, because I could be in that other situation, that alternative present that I created. Now, metacognition does allows us to create alternative worlds or to create worlds. Who creates worlds? Well, that's God. So uh, with metacognition, we were made like God. We became like God in that sense. It's fascinating. Now, have you thought about what we spoke about regret there? What do you think you, you will be most likely to regret at the end of your life? Uh, I don't want this 
to sound arrogant, but if I give any other answer, I'll be lying. Um, I The last time I faced regret was when I blew up my ear for the second time and my tinnitus got a lot worse and led me to think of suicide. Um, that was four years ago. Since then, something moved within me, something changed within me. I don't know what, I don't know why, I don't know exactly when. Um, but I, I don't regret stuff. Um, I, I, I regard now even the screw-ups as part of reality, part of what is and should have been, because that's what brought me to where I am. Um, so if I would force an answer, no, I can't force an answer. I, I don't think I'll regret anything, even the horrible stuff, even the stuff that made me suffer, even the stuff that made other people suffer. Maybe that I could regret a little more, uh, but I, I haven't been particularly evil in my life. I made a couple of people suffer, but not out of malice. Um, so no, I, I regret doesn't play much of a role for me now. Um, yeah, anxiety does, regret doesn't. I don't know why, uh, Niall. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Okay. Well, you mentioned there about even if I, there I is something. Go on. I, I think I, I, I developed this, this ability <laughs> to be kind towards myself. <laughs> um, so when I screwed up in the past, my present self looks at my past self with kindness. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I, I don't know how to answer this question very well. <laughs> No, it's interesting. Now, you mentioned there about even if there is suffering and even if there are wrong turns, it's still going to be in the long run beneficial. And something I was really wanting to ask you about in this conversation is sacrifice. You know, what does the word sacrifice mean to you? And to what extent should we view our lives as sacrificial? Well, according to Jung, our lives are meant to be sacrificial, not in a romantic honey kind you know way um but in a very real pungent present way a, a life of sacrifice is a life that's lived not for your own sake or agenda but for the sake and agenda of nature whatever that might be now if you frame it this way that's obviously the case and now imagine the life of a blossom of my apple tree Imagine that that blossom of my apple tree would think that its life is about it. Imagine that. You would have a laugh at that. Because that blossom is about to help a seed get uh, fertilized. And, and then that blossom is supposed to die to make room for the fruit, which then will create the next apple tree and the dance of life will go on. But if that blossom thinks my life is about me, it tries not to die. And it doesn't play its role in the dance of existence, at least not very well. It goes kicking and screaming along the currents of life, which is you know, not, not only useless, it's, yeah, it's not natural. Um, we are the same thing. I mean, we, didn't, we are not aliens here um, in this reality, on this planet. We came out of it. We germinated out of it, just like the apple tree blossom, blossoms out of the apple tree. It didn't land on the apple tree from a parallel reality. We, we aren't aliens. Um, we aren't watching a theatrical play. We, we are acting in it. We are banging in the middle of it. We came out of it. 
we are an integral part of this web of life um, in which we find ourselves. So to think that our lives are about us, even though it's it has become incredibly enough, it has become it has become common sense in the Western mentality that now dominates the entire world. Um, if you think a second thought about it, if you think a little deeper about it, it's preposterous. It's profoundly ridiculous. Why would the life of an ape be about that ape? Um, of course it isn't. And if it isn't, then by definition, it's, it's a sacrificial life. It's a life lived for the sake of something bigger, for the sake of the context, the sake of the whole, the sake of the web of life or the dance of nature. Uh, and that's a life well lived, and uh, in my view, and and that's a life that's the life that is least conducive to suffering, because it lifts off your shoulder, your shoulders, that um, incredibly heavy, impossible to carry responsibility to make yourself happy. Um, and in the West, we live under this implicit notion that culture has manufactured plausibility for, which is our lives are about us, then we have the responsibility to make ourselves happy. This is silly. It's ridiculous because to make oneself happy, one has to have not only control over oneself, which is already impossible, one has to have control over all circumstances of the environment that are salient for one's happiness, which is completely impossible. And, and then what happens is that we systematically fail at it and we blame ourselves and we regret and then we meta suffer and then all down the, the crap show begins uh, right there. So a life of sacrifice may sound like romantic and noble and associated with pain and suffering because sacrifice is associated with pain and suffering. But uh, amazingly enough for the present Western mind, it's precisely the opposite. It's a life in, in which you're not trying to play Titan and carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. So all of that responsibility is off your shoulders. You're responsible for your part in the dance. You're not responsible for the end result. And whether you're happy enough or, or not, your life can be meaningful either way, which ultimately is what matters. The will to meaning uh, um, is above, is stronger than the Freudian will to pleasure or the Nietzschean will to power. Um, and when people realize that, that a meaningful life is the best life, it's much better than an Epicurean life driven by pleasure uh, or a Nietzschean life driven by power, which is you know, the, the big thing in the West today. When people have a taste of that and they realize how much better it is, then they also understand that a life of sacrifice is not a life of noble pain and suffering. On the contrary, it's a, it's a life in which what Milan Kundera called the unbearable lightness of being becomes completely bearable, becomes warm and welcoming. And you know, you, you, you can find yourself, you can build yourself a nest right there. Um, that's my experience of it at least. I think it's a beautiful perspective and in your, your course for the Essential Foundations YouTube channel, um, you mentioned the, there's a, you know, our culture has had a, a symbol for this for a long time. You know, this, the, the image of death is always a, sort of a cloaked figure with this, this scythe, this harvesting tool, you know, and like things like this, whenever I seen that a light bulb went on my mind, I was like, oh my God, like people have known about this for a long time. 
Um, but another, <laughs> an, another thing you talk about, Bernardo, um, is, you know, the death itself and what might happen after we go. And it's sort, sort of like, you know, I want to get your thoughts on this idea that our conscious experience is contributing regardless of what happens when we're here on earth, it's contributing to the, a bigger mind whenever we're gone. It's sort of like, it's, I don't want to say it's uploaded or whatever, but it's sort of like it becomes part of this, this bigger mind. Could you maybe speak to that and what your thoughts are on that? Well, for a number of very good analytic reasons in philosophy, um, the only tenable path forward for a metaphysical understanding of reality, in other words, an understanding of reality as it is, as opposed to, to how it behaves, which is the issue of science. Metaphysics is about metaphysics, that which stands behind physics, and physics is the behavior of nature. So what is that that behaves? What is the nature of reality? What is the essence of existence? Um, the only plausible path to pursue, to answer that question, and this is becoming more and more accepted today, is to think of reality as one mind, one field of subjectivity. When I say mind, I don't mean a human-like mind with high-level mental functions. I don't mean anything like that. What I mean is one field of subjectivity. And what we call physicality or matter is how the dynamics or the mental processes in this field of subjectivity present themselves to observation because of how our cognitive apparatus was built by evolution. So reality is one big mind, one big natural mind. Um, to think of reality as many minds leads to insoluble problems. It leads to the so-called decomposition problem in analytic philosophy. I'm not going to get into that. Um, to think of... Uh, it also leads to the combination problem. If you take a panpsychist or, or, or a constitutive panpsychist approach, it leads to the to the combination problem. Uh, and if you don't think in terms of a mind, then you have the heart problem. So there are these impossible problems everywhere. Uh, not the decomposition problem. I meant the combination problem. So we start with one mind, and then we face a problem as well, which is the decomposition problem. But that problem is soluble. Uh, through the idea of dissociation, which is an empirical fact of reality. So that's the whole point. The whole point of everything I just said is to justify that the only plausible, tenable way forward is to think of reality as one mind, and we are just dissociated um, complexes, mental complexes within that one mind. And what the dissociation looks like is biology, life. That's what life is. Life is what a dissociative process in this one mind of nature looks like when observed from the outside, from across a dissociative boundary. If that's the case, then death, the end of life, is the end of the dissociation. <laughs> it's not the end of the mind, the one mind that exists, a segment of which we experience directly. It's the end of that dissociative process that seems to create multiple minds out of one. This can happen in the mind of a person as well. It's called dissociative identity disorder. And for the last 20 years, we've learned a whole lot about it. We know it really happens and it creates this alter personalities. It, it used to be called multiple personality disorder. Um, so what can we expect then if in life we are a dissociative process in the mind of nature and that's why we, we perceive the universe as opposed to 
experiencing the universe directly by being the universe. If that's what life is, and death is the end of that dissociation, then death is an expansion of our mental inner life. It's a reassociation of our mental inner life with the cognitive context that surrounds us, the one big mind of nature. So it's not the end of anything that was ever real. Um, it's the end of a separation. Um, and, and the body decomposes because it's an echo or a footprint of something that nature was doing before and is no longer doing the moment you die and your, and your metabolism ceases. So I think what, what we might, based on reason, uh, what we might expect from the experience of dying is one, a dissolution of our sense of personal self or ego dissolution, um, which many people are terrorized of. I have undergone it several times with psychedelics and now I don't mind it at all. <laughs> uh, I don't find it scary at all. Um, and second, um, an expansion uh, of the contents of our consciousness, similar to the expansion of the contents of your consciousness when you wake up from a dream. When you're dreaming, you are dissociated from yourself. You think you are your dream avatar and not the rest of the dream. But lo and behold, it's you doing the whole thing. You're doing the cars, the buildings, the trees, the other people you are talking to, but you're dissociated from the part of your mind that is doing the rest of the dream. You think you are the dream avatar alone. When you wake up, that dissociation ends and your dream avatar is dead. Your dream avatar is toast. The moment you wake up, is gone. But you don't wake up crying and mourning the death of your dream avatar because instead of a reduction of the contents of your consciousness, there is an expansion. You might still remember the dream, so all of that is still part of you. But now you know more. You know the overall context in which the dream took place. Um, so I think that's what we might expect. Now, because of our cultural expectations and prejudices and unexamined assumptions, that experience. Um, nice sounding as it is may be resisted and, and experienced with horror um, because for as long as you think you are your ego and your ego begins to unravel which does which it does in a psychedelic trip as well which produces brain activity death ends brain activity so you can expect even more of an ego dissolution but uh, we know that some people undergoing a psychedelic experience are terrorized of ego dissolution even though they are perfectly safe nothing bad at all is 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 happening but they are so attached to that to that narrative of, of a separate self that they experience the forced end of that narrative um, as something horrific so it's possible that uh, that a whole bunch of us will experience death as something horrific i fear it for myself to be honest with you <laughs> because i'm not an enlightened being i i i, I know certain things out of reasoning and evidence not necessarily out of direct experience but yeah that's what i think we we can expect interesting okay and since materialism became sort of like the default view of our culture you know in the mainstream we essentially lost the idea of the afterlife and there's pros to that there's huge pros to that in the sense that it lifts oh, yeah. up a massive weight off your shoulders but there's big cons to it as well. Could you maybe tell us about, about these, like both sides? Well, the, the, the big pro, which is what, you know, cemented materialism in, in the Western psyche around mid-19th century, 
the big pro is <laughs> you get rid of the one biggest, most pervasive fear in the history of human experience, which is the fear of what you will experience after you're dead. That single fear has allowed the Catholic Church to completely control the European continent for a thousand years. The Catholic Church didn't have weapons other than the 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 the, the, the Knights Templar and brief period around the, the Crusades. Other than that, the church didn't have an army, didn't have weapons. So how was the church the single most powerful institution in Europe during a thousand years of violence and lawlessness? Well, they controlled you based on that fear, that one single fear. What will I experience after I die? I better buy real estate in the after-death state. So I better buy an indulgency from the church. I better respect the Pope because otherwise I'm damned to go to hell and burn for all eternity. So that one single greatest fear, the fear that enabled the greatest repression of human flourishing in the history of humanity was off the table. I mean, that's the biggest pro, that's the biggest payoff, the biggest motivation of all times. And we don't see it today. It may sound abstract to you today, my saying all this stuff, you may think, well, well I, would, I would love to, to really believe in the afterlife. Well, if you really did believe in that, you, you would be petrified because it's a big unknown. And you're not going to land there with a body to defend yourself. You have no idea what it's going to be. You would actually be petrified. Now, we don't. We think it's abstract because we take it for granted. What we truly believe today is that death really is the end. And we take that release from the biggest fear in history for granted. And we no longer can emotionally evaluate what a enormous what an enormous payoff it was at around mid 19th uh, century well it began at the enlightenment but it really crystallized around mid 19th century the time when nietzsche was you know issuing his warning his most famous warning god is dead we killed god it was around that time now the con and that's the price we paid for being released from the greatest fear in the history of humanity, the price we paid is that um, we lost meaning. Because to believe that um, experience will completely cease the day you die is to believe that um, all of your insights, all of your learnings, the value you got out of all your suffering during life, all of your maturation, your your evolution as a human being, your betterment as a human being that you've acquired at great cost because of great suffering in life, everything that made you a better human being, all of that is going to be lost and it will ultimately be for absolutely nothing. Um, we have to believe that uh, consciousness has no causal powers. Consciousness is just an epiphenomenon a side effect, a silly, importance-less, uh, unimportant witness of the causal play of matter, that we are a kind of ephemeral glow around uh, certain structures of, of physical entities. In other words, it's to believe that we are unimportant, 
that there is no meaning to our lives and whatever we go through ultimately it's for nothing that's the price we pay we abandon that greatest fear and that greatest responsibility for living a responsible life we don't need to because when you're dead you're dead you know all of your crimes all of your worries all of your regrets they will come to an end great payoff but we pay also the greatest price in history which is to live what we believe to be uh, meaningless lives and that's our tragedy and when you take this view widespread things like widespread addiction uh, depression anxiety suicide you know these things make sense in that context if life is meaningless you know these things i would would seem to emerge um you've mentioned nietzsche a few times in this conversation already and in a conversation you had with jonathan pajou i heard you mention that a phrase that really jumped out at me was something about Nietzsche's life can almost be seen as a microcosm of what our culture is now experiencing as a macrocosm. I don't know if you remember yeah. that, but that really, you know, that rang true for me. So could you maybe ex expand on that a little bit and tell us what you were getting at there? Sure. Um, I'm fascinated by Nietzsche, not because I agree with anything he said. I don't. I don't think he advanced philosophy in the sense of postulating things that would turn out to be true. The, his life was itself a matter of philosophy. And that's where I see the value in him. I mean, even, even Nietzsche wouldn't disagree with what I just said, because Nietzsche disagreed with himself constantly. He changed his mind constantly uh, throughout his life. Um, but it is his life that is his great philosophy. It is the things that he saw and anticipated as a single human about the fate of humanity as a whole, and therefore embodied in his own life what the fate of humanity was going to be. That is, a, that is the greatest work of philosophy in history, because his philosophy was not a card play in which cards are concepts. That's, that's how most of us do philosophy, including me. Uh, we play a game of cards. We rearrange concepts around to see if it looks better, more plausible, more logical, more coherent, more empirically adequate. We are playing cards. Nietzsche didn't. Nietzsche, his philosophy was lived. It was his life. His vision was his philosophy, not a system not a model, a conceptual model, none of that, none of that. Um, so he is uh, miles above the rest of us. You know, people like to say that the whole of philosophy is a footnote to Plato, and Plato definitely was a great philosopher. But uh, I don't think it's for no reason that Nietzsche is considered the most influential philosopher of all times because his philosophy was his life. Now, what was that that he embodied in one lifetime that anticipates the life of humanity? He anticipated the loss of meaning. We killed God, so we lost contact with a source of transcendent meaning, meaning a context for our lives, a context in which our brief lives play a role and make sense. 
a context in which our lives leave something behind after our lives are done with, that context continues and continues to use the output of our lives, um, something bigger than our own lives. We lost that the moment we killed God um, and our hands became bloodied, as Nietzsche put it, because we got rid of the context, the natural context that gives meaning to life. We became aliens in this universe, anomalies, mere observers with no causal powers that go through all this crap they go through for nothing, for no reason. He saw that. He saw that in the 1870s. And then he lived that because he was the son of a pastor. He had an extraordinarily religious disposition. Now, perhaps one of the world's most famous atheists had an extraordinary religious disposition. And I submit to you that that's true for every atheist, because you can only be passionate about denying something if you're passionate about that something. Um, someone like me, who was never pushed into religion, even though my mother was is Catholic and does her thing, I, I, she never send me to Sunday school. I mean, religion was one option in a big menu that I had as a child. I have no passion in denying religion because well, why would I have? You know, I'm, it, it's no big deal anyway. I don't have an axe to grind. I think most atheists have that kind of axe to grind. And that was surely the case about Nietzsche. Uh, the love of his life, Luz Salome, who was a philosopher and a psychologist uh, in her own right, she had the best analysis of Nietzsche. He says, I have, I have never met a more religious person than, than Nietzsche. She said it in her book called Nietzsche. <laughs> um, so the moment we killed God, Nietzsche himself in his own life experienced that loss of context, that loss of meaning in his own life. And it devastated him. It led to all kinds of psychosomatic symptoms. He couldn't teach anymore. So he had to retire very early, still in his late 20s or early 30s, uh, 78. Uh, yeah, around 30. Uh, he had to retire uh, and live out of a small pension from the university uh, because he couldn't see. He had these horrible headaches that made him in incapable of work, sometimes 200 days in a year. Um, and he went live a uh, nomadic life, traveling from little village to little village around, uh, you know, the Alps uh, and southern Germany, sometimes eastern Germany, which is where he came from. Um, so his life reflected the effect of that loss of meaning. And, and then he tried to compensate for that. He tried to find meaning back in his own life. And he tried to do that by elevating the human condition to the position of something divine. That was the Übermensch, the, the Superman that, that um, he created. The idea of a man-god who was uh, limited by the limitations of every human being, but somehow was able to distill that limitation and artistically or scientifically create something great out of that limitation, a kind of alchemical transmutation of pain, suffering, and limitation into something extraordinarily beautiful, enriching, and edifying. And that, that was more or less the Superman. We don't know exactly because Nietzsche never defined the Superman. He just talked about it, but never said what it is. 
what we do know is that he saw himself as the announcer, the prophet of the Superman. He was announcing the coming of the Superman. And what happened then? What, well, b b before I get to that, then he, he predicted that without the Superman, there would be the last man. And the last man would engage in a life of addictive patterns of behavior because the last man would have no meaning. His life would make no sense. So he would indulge in banality, patterns of addiction. And when I say addiction, I don't mean only substance addiction. I mean addiction to reality TV, addiction to buying the next pair of shoes, uh, addiction to arguing with your, arguing with your partner. And there are many, many patterns of addiction in our society. Our society is one great indulgement of patterns of activity. That's the Western life today, a life of addiction. Um, and Nietzsche predicted that because that's the only way to distract yourself from the meaninglessness of our condition, which we created ourselves by killing God. The, the solution to that was the Superman, which he predicted, and he was the, you know, the, the announcer of, the prophet of. Um, but did the Superman come to him? It didn't. The Superman never came to him. He became literally insane because by putting on the shoulders of men, and I'm using um, um, uh, old-fashioned terminology here. I mean humanity, but I'm uh, I'm in that Nietzschean mode, so I, the words come out in that old-fashioned uh, way. Um, if you put on the shoulders of man the responsibility for creating meaning out of something fundamentally meaningless, you drive man nuts. Because it's impossible. It's a task that is concurrently absolutely needed and absolutely impossible. And this fundamental contradiction, you know, the, the unmovable versus the all-powerful, uh, it, it is that contradiction of powers, something that is absolutely needed and we cannot live without but that something being completely impossible and unachievable by any means, it is that conflict that drives you to insanity. And it drove him to insanity. He lived the last 10 years of his life uh, as an insane, clinically uh, insane, psychiatrically insane person, that brilliant mind obliterated uh, itself. And yes, there are now all these stories. Maybe he had syphilis. Well, the case for that is very weak. There is a case that he may have had a benign tumor uh, in his brain that grew very slowly. Well, perhaps we will never know. But what we do know by reading his corpus is that we see that trajectory in which the inner contradictions of his realizations were growing and growing and growing and growing. And if he didn't have that tumor, he would be insane anyway, <laughs> because it, it was impossible to create philosophy by living philosophy and going that direction in your philosophy that you live, that you create by living it and not be insane. And that's the warning to us all. Uh, we are already the last man. The Superman didn't come. It won't come. Are we going to become insane? That's the question that Nietzsche's life and philosophy, which are one and the same thing, 
uh, confront us with. Are we going to become insane? Wow. Okay. okay. Are we already insane? We're definitely we're doing a summit at the moment on on addiction, and you know from doing that interviewing all these people on that subject, it's just it struck me that you know we do definitely live in an addicted society, and it's it's so common and so pervasive and destroying destroying so many lives. But um, you, I'm aware that you gave up quite a quite a prestigious job, a very good salary and a very good career to do what you're currently doing and something i wanted to ask you about in this conversation as well is the extent to which we can find freedom true freedom in service so what are your thoughts on that oh uh, it's the only real freedom it's the only freedom worth uh, having because it may sound contradictory, right? That you are free in a life of service. Um, linguistically, it sounds absolutely contradictory. Like a life of service is the life of a of a slave, which is the opposite of freedom. But it is not. We lose freedom the moment we place on our shoulders a responsibility we cannot live up to. That that's that's the prison, that's the jail. That's what make you go around in circles, trying the same thing again and again, even though it hasn't worked ever before. You keep on trying it because it's the only recipe book you have. You don't know what else to do. And some people do it until they're old. They keep playing the game of status, power, uh, money, all the way into their 90s. And I think Rupert Murdoch retired only the other day. <laughs> I mean, the recipes for the first half of life work for the first half of life not for the second but we don't have a rule book or a recipe book for the second half of life so we insist on the same strategies even though they're completely senseless in the second half of life now why why is you know that early strategy for the first half of life a prison later on <laughs> if what you were trained to try to get to hunt and try to achieve turn out to be a ghost that when you get it, your fingers just run across it. It's just gas. There is nothing there. And you keep on trying to catch that ghost, even though you know there's nothing there. That's the prison. That's, that's the prison of going around in a loop because you, you don't know what else to do. Even though there are no walls around you, you never go anywhere else. You keep on running around in a loop. It's a glass prison. It's not even glass. It's an air prison. There are no walls there. It's just that we keep running around like rats. We don't know what else to do. We keep insisting on the same failed strategies that lead to no fulfillment, uh, that lead to no meaning and lead to nothing. Um, but we don't know what else to do. That's the prison. And that prison has a name, which is... You, Try to make yourself happy. It's your responsibility to make yourself happy. And the only way to make yourself happy is to catch that ghost. There, off you go. <laughs> I mean, if this weren't tragic, uh, it's comical. Um, and you see people doing this all over the place. Famous people, rich people. 
Now, when you understand that that's not the game, that's not the game of nature, it has never been, will never be, it's, it's completely incoherent, it's downright silly. Um, as silly as the, li the little blossom of the apple tree saying, my life's about me, I didn't come out of this tree, <laughs> no, I, 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 the tree is mine, <laughs> I conquered the tree. <laughs> um, that's what we do, and that's the prison. A prison without walls. What is freedom? Freedom is to understand that you are just the blossom of the apple tree. You don't own the tree. You don't need to conquer the tree. You came out of it. And you have a role to play. You play it and your life will have its natural course. And it will have its natural timing. And there will be no regret because you're not responsible for the end result. Imagine the blossom telling the apple tree, I'm responsible for how many apples you're going to produce this year. <laughs> Good luck taking that responsibility on your shoulders, little blossom. Um, but we do that. We are responsible for the outcome of our lives, which is silly. There are too many parameters, too many factors and forces way beyond us uh, on which we have absolutely no control. So what is, what is this business that, we, that our lives is about us? But if we understand, well, I can speak at least for myself. When I understood my life is not about me, has never been and can never be, that is just a wrong line of thinking. Um, and that all I am expected to do from the nature that put me here is to listen to nature and play my role as best as I can. Um, only then did I become really free because I'm no longer responsible for the end result. I'm no longer responsible for the outcome. I'm only responsible for playing my part the absolute best way I can, which is the way I will play it. And if I don't play it better, well, then I couldn't. And I'm, I, I can live with that. And there will be a moment I will be in my deathbed and I hopefully will look back and thinking and think, all the timings were correct. This is the right time to go. That's part of, of the play as well. Uh, I did what I, was, what I was supposed to be and how this play will end, it, it, it's, it's not up to me. You know, uh, this apple blossom is not going to take on the responsibility for how many apples are produced per year by that apple tree. Um, so there is a tremendous sense of release and freedom in a life of service. And I don't mean it in a romantic, religious way. No, for real, you know, here in the 21st century, in the world of the Ukrainian war and, and, and the tragedy and the brutality in Israel, in this world, there is freedom in a life of service, for real, very concretely. That's a very good point. And... As you're speaking there, it makes me think that, you know, every culture carries assumptions that people take for granted. And this idea that we're responsible for our own happiness is something that we've all kind of carried from a young age. And we don't realize how destructive that actually is, both on an individual and collective level. So I think it's so important just to raise awareness of what you're actually talking about here, you know, because I think there's, it can relieve a lot of suffering for people. Um, you speak yeah, you know, a lot. Our, our entire, uh, sorry, there's a lag between us. I'm sorry about that, Niall. But our entire well-being industry, our entire self-help industry 
is based on this one notion that our lives are about us. Your life's about you, my life's about me, and we are responsible for the end result of it. The whole industry of well-being and self-help is based on it. Yeah, there is a lot invested in it. For sure, for sure. Now, something that you've spoken quite a bit on in recent recent years is this idea of a diamond. So what is a diamond, Bernardo, and what is your relationship with your own diamond? The notion of a diamond as a sort of an entity with its own agenda um, is, of course, a symbol or a metaphor. Um, but it's a very useful symbol or metaphor for me, for how I live my life. So what do I mean by the diamond? The diamond is the flow of an impersonal will within us. Um, it's a will we experience directly as if it were our own. But it's a will that uh, does not have our personal well-being in mind doesn't have our safety in mind, couldn't care less. It's a will that manifests itself without being couched in a narrative of why. It doesn't, it, it wills what it wills, but it doesn't tell you why. Why do I want this? Why does nature want this through me, which is the more accurate way of describing it? It doesn't come with a why. And that's another hallmark of this impersonal will that sort of flows uh, within us within us all um, it doesn't come with a, with an explanation like an egoic agenda comes with an explanation if what you want to do has an explanation a neat nicely constructed logical coherent explanation like i want this because if i achieve this then that then that other thing well that's your own will that's that's your own personal narrative um, the impersonal will has none of that it doesn't doesn't tell why it goes against uh, your your what anybody would consider to be your best interests it um it may go against your ability to be financially successful it may go against your safety present and future um it may go against even your ability to live a comfortable life um it may go against your need to polish your image to have a nicely polished persona that you present to the world. Um, in other words, it's, uh, it doesn't care about you. And yet you feel that will sort of ebbing and flowing and rising within you. Um, some people take possession of it. Some people th make the movements of that will be an egoic thing. They think it's, it's, they think it's them who are willing that. And, and the result of that is ego inflation, which is one of the most dangerous psychological conditions that human beings can have. Uh, who around us has ego inflation in recent history? Well, Trump, Putin, Hitler, these are all, Chi, uh, these are all tremendously ego, ego inflated characters. They could feel that impersonal will flowing within them, but they hijacked it and they made it be about them. And, and that's the most unnatural thing that can happen and it distorts the whole thing and leads to great danger. Um, so that's why the figure of the diamond is useful, I think, to me and maybe to many other people, I, I dare suspect. It allows you to avoid inflation 
because you say, that's not my will, that's the will of my diamond. My diamond is trying to get me to do this or that. It's not me. So one, one use of it, 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 it pre preempts ego inflation from the start. Another use for it is that it puts you on tenable moral ground because sometimes the impersonal will of nature is what it's trying to do through you is such that um, it could lead to great personal misfortune. It doesn't care whether you have a salary at the end of the month, food on your table tomorrow, or a roof over your head next time it rains. It doesn't care about that. Um, and you would be a useless tool of nature if you didn't have any of those things. So you have to engage in a kind of dialogue with the impersonal will. Not negotiation, well, maybe even negotiation, but not bargaining. Um, a dialogue to say, well, you are not me, you are the diamond, and I'm now going to have a dialogue with you so we can find some middle ground here uh, so I can have what to eat and I can have sufficient money in the bank to play a, a meaningful social role. Um, but beyond that, I will do your bidding. And the only way to have that inner dialogue is to personify what is impersonal, to personify the will of nature as it's trying to express itself through you. So that's another reason I personify it and I call it the diamond. So my life is a life of service to the diamond, but I dialogue with it because I don't want to be crushed by it. And, and believe you me, uh, the impersonal will of nature can crush you just like a tornado can destroy your house, just like a tsunami can destroy half a country. You know, the will of nature is a force of nature. It's very impersonal like a hurricane, like a tsunami, like a tornado, um, like a solar flare. That, that's what you're dealing with here. Uh, it's not bound by the limits of one little human being. So dialogue with it, not bargaining. Bargaining is impossible. But dialogue with it is, 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 is essential. And, and, you know, personifying it and attaching a metaphor, a symbol to it, the diamond, uh, is useful. To me, at least. I think it's an incredibly important idea because there are a lot, there's a, there's a phenomenon, you know, the, we spoke about the last time of the starving artist where people that are highly creative and highly entrepreneurial and highly artistic, they really struggle with the idea of like making money and these things. But, you know, if you want to be, as you say, a useful tool for nature, you have to be able to pay the bills and support yourself and be well and that if you if you don't have this negotiation and you don't personalize it as you say to do um the, this thing can just you know throw you around in the same way that a, st a storm can throw like a little boat around you know absolutely and th there are twin dangers here uh if we don't personify it and and create a sort of a a persona for it that we can dialogue with with if we don't do that there are two dangers one is that it will absolutely crush you like what you just said, like the starving artist. You will um, make no effort to take care of yourself. You will not only serve the will, you, you will be the, the, um, the doormat of the will. Uh, and it will step on you and it will you know, stample all over you and it will kill you eventually. But there is another twin danger, which is the opposite of it. And that danger is 
to take egoic possession of the power of the impersonal will and channel that enormous power, that force of nature that is as powerful as a tsunami or a hurricane, channel that towards an egoic agenda. And that can make you very powerful, like Trump, like Putin, like a Xi. Um, and that's power way beyond what a normal human being has. Um, people who channel that impersonal power towards their own egotistic or egoistic even agenda, um, they can be extremely charismatic because since they are channeling the impersonal, that impersonal will resonate with many other people because it's not personal. So it can resonate with millions, millions, hundreds of millions because they are all in touch with that one force of nature. Hitler did exactly that. Hitler mobilized the passions of the German people and the prejudices of the German people who were an extremely oppressed people in the 1920s and 30s. Germany was, and the German people were, essentially tortured by the winning powers after the, the First World War. They didn't have coal, to burn and keep warm in the winter. Inflation was thousands of percent. If you got your salary, you had to rush to, to buy your bread in the morning because in the afternoon you couldn't afford it anymore. Um, it, it, it was catastrophic. So imagine the amount of impersonal power that that condition mobilizes. And then you have a character like Hitler who is clever enough to tune into that. But then instead of serving it uh, for the benefit of the German people, um, he took possession of it and rechanneled it um, for personal benefit. He himself didn't know that. Huh? Hitler himself, I think, was absolutely convinced that he was working in the best interest of the German people, just as Putin today is convinced that he's working in the best interest of the Russian people. Trump, I'm not sure. Trump, I think, is is pathological enough to know that he's doing it for himself and he's just using everybody else. But he's plugging into that same impersonal power. Something that is impersonal affects many, many people. Um, and there is a segment of the US population that has been systematically alienated for the past several decades by liberal elites. It, it is... I'm largely considered a member of the liberal elite by others, uh, not by myself, but I understand why others think that. But even if I were that, uh, at least I would be a member of the liberal elite who is aware of the fact that the liberal elite has an, uh, alienated a great many people over decades. And to do that and expect no reaction is <laughs> just naive. A uh, reaction is coming. Unfortunately, here is somebody, somebody who had the skill to tap into that and rechannel it for completely different purposes. And, and the danger is something like what happened to the German people, whose situation became a lot worse at the end of the Second World War, might end up happening with people today again, with the Russians, with the Chinese. And, and so there are these twin dangers, uh, Niall. Uh, sorry for my long-winded uh, reply. One is you let yourself be crushed by an impersonal will. And the second is 
you rechannel that energy for egotistic purposes, and then you crush others with the impersonal will. And that's why I think the symbol of the diamond, the personification of the impersonal, is so important because it separates it, it separates it from you. So it doesn't allow you to rechannel it as if it were your own energy. And in separating it from you, it also allows you to dialogue with it. So you're not crushed by it. Yeah. So th therefore, Bernardo has a diamond. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is tremendous utility in that idea for anybody that has any kind of influence in our world, I suppose. You know, musicians, politicians, sports stars, like they should be doing some kind of work in this area where they personify this aspect of themselves and they realize that it's not them and it's something working through them because if they can do that then they're going to uh, resist the temptation to think of themselves as a god because I, I can imagine if you're a musician standing on a stage and tens of thousands of people are screaming your name like how could you not how could you not think of yourself a god, of a god or as a god in that situation but something i was actually curious to ask you i wasn't didn't think it would come up in this part of the conversation was how have you kept yourself grounded? How have you kept yourself humble throughout all this? Because in recent years, you've had a really, you know, a really sharp rise to, um, you know, you've had a lot of attention. So how, how has this sh shown up in your own life? Oh, you know, in all honesty, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. And I'll, um, I, I have never been able to deliberately deceive myself. That's, I, I like to think that nobody can deliberately, de deliberately deceive themselves, but apparently a lot of people can. Um, I, I, I was never able to do that. So it, it is impossible for me to think of myself as anything other than the next human being, because that's the reality. Uh, I, I don't think there was any particular special approach or technique to allow, to allow me to do that. What I cannot do is not do that, if, if you know what I mean. Uh, I, I, I can't deceive myself so deliberately. I can't look at myself in the mirror and think of myself as anything other than what I am. Uh, it, it doesn't work. Uh, for me, it doesn't work that way. Uh, and... and um, I know too much about my own crap, you know, my, my own ego flares, insecurity flares uh, here and there. Um, yeah, maybe there is one thing I can say. I have always paid attention. That I can say to the benefit of myself. This, um, I don't want to come across arrogant, but if I, if I can say anything good about myself, it is that I have always paid attention. I've always paid attention not only to what's, what is around me, but to my own behavior. Every time I behave spontaneously in a certain way, I, I can't help but go back and look at it again. Uh, recently, I, I had a, an attempted debate with a philosopher of physics who started the debate in a way that violated every rule of social interaction. Uh, very abusive, uh, very confrontational tone of voice and demeanor. Um, and I, f I felt profoundly disrespected for that. And I got very angry, very angry. 
Um, but shortly afterwards, I started, I started asking myself, why did I get so angry? Because, you know, even though I think strictly speaking, um, what he did was not conducive to dialogue, it was socially regrettable, uh, objectively speaking, I still think that was the case. But I could have reacted to it in the same way I did, I did without the anger, <laughs> if you know what I mean. The anger was not necessary. So why did it trigger my anger? And the answer was, there is something uh, about the behavior of that person that I have in me. Um, I express that combative spirit um, according to social rules. So I, I'm never abusive to someone I'm speaking face to face. I always treat, treat people with courtesy and respect. Um, but in writing for rhetorical effect, uh, I, I can be almost insulting to ideas. Now, you can be insulting to ideas, you know, we have been doing this since the mid 19th century, you know, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche were masters uh, <laughs> of doing that. Uh, and, and that's completely acceptable. But forget what is socially acceptable or not, what follows the rules or not. D let us just look at the fountainhead of the emotion behind it, that character um, aspect that underlies both expressions. One, a socially unacceptable outburst. Another one, a socially acceptable, neat one. But the fountainhead is a character trait that I share with that guy I despised, which is the, the rhetorical taste for almost being disparaging to certain ideas. Now, there, there is a, a good reason for me to do that. I even wrote about it in my own blog, which is um, materialists love to disparage non-materialists. So uh, for years, I have taken on that same tone against them um, in order to put a mirror in front of them. So there's a good reason why I do this. It's not just pure emotion, but there is a character trait in me that makes me follow that reasoning with gusto. <laughs> if you know what I mean. So there is a good reason for what I do, but I do it with pleasure, not purely for the reason I do. I do it for the reason I do it, which I already explained, but I, I do it with pleasure. So I do share a character trait with that person whose behavior I despised, and that's why it angered me. Things that anger you are, are usually things that you have in yourself, but you don't want to confront. So I paid attention to it. So it, it has been like this throughout my life. I, I, I pay attention. And if you pay attention, you can never see yourself as more than a human being who goes to the toilet every day like everybody else and stinks up the house. No, it's the same thing. <laughs> Um, I can't help but uh, but see this, and and to me it's it's difficult to even imagine that someone could not see this. I find it bizarre that so many people seem to not see this. To to me, it's an impossible feat feat <laughs> to not see my own humanity. <laughs> it's impossible not to see it. Okay, that's really interesting. Now, has the, this, the fact that this has been brought to your awareness, Bernardo, has this made you question your normal approach to debate? And are you going to change anything going forward? Or is it just enough that it's been brought to your awareness? 
Uh, no, I'm not going to change it because I, I still think the reasons why I do that are valid. Um, and the question is whether I do that in a very emotionally neutral way. I do it purely for the reasons or I do it for the reasons, but I also enjoy doing it for the right reasons. And I realized that, uh, hey, I enjoy doing it for the right reasons. But the fact that I realized that I have this character trait, I already knew before. This is just a sort of relearnings, certain things you have to keep on relearning in your life. So this is just one more instance of relearning. So the fact that I realized, re-realized -re that, um, that I do it with taste, with, with gusto, doesn't change the rationale for doing it anyway, if you know what I mean. So there are good reasons to do that. Whether I, I enjoy doing it or not, there are good reasons to do that. And now I realized again, I enjoy doing it, but the reasons are still valid. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep doing that. So this relearning is a, is a personal thing. It's for me. Um, it's not going to change the way I act. In, in Under different circumstances, it might. If, if I learn something about me that I didn't quite understand before, and it has a bearing on, on how I pursue my work, then I will change. In this particular case, it, it so happens that I think there are good reasons anyway to, to go about it the way I do. And I, and I was never abusive to other person face-to-face. Uh, -face. So I don't need to change that because I was never abused, ab abusive face-to-face. -face. I have only be, been insulting to ideas and in writing. Okay. Okay. Well, Bernardo, I've enjoyed every minute of this conversation. It's been absolutely fascinating to speak with you. So thank you for, for being here and sharing some of your insights with us. Um, where can people find more about you online? Where would you send people after this conversation to, to learn more? You can always go to bernardocastrop.com, which is my website, Bernardo Castrop, one word and Kestrup with a K in the beginning and a P, as, as in Peter, at the end. Uh, and there you have links to my YouTube videos, to, to essays that are freely available, to academic papers that are freely available in open source, to a couple of theses, to links to my books, which are not freely available because they are published by a commercial uh, publisher, um, podcasts, well, there's uh, all kinds of things. Everything is linked from there. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Bernardo. And I want to wish you the best of luck going forward too. Thanks for having me now. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with the Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to your mastered library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is £97 for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free, as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information.